Welcome to Next Left. I'm John Nichols of The Nation magazine, and this week we're talking with Philadelphia City Council member Helen Gim. You may have seen her rallying recently with Senator Bernie Sanders to save Hanneman Hospital from closure. Gim's always rallying and marching, picketing and petitioning. She's an activist and an organizer who sees her service as part of a movement politics that is rooted in her community, but that forges networks that are global in scope and character. Gim understands cities as laboratories of democracy that spin out ideas that other cities, states, and nations can adopt. And she's got a lot of ideas. She got her start in journalism, but soon turned to teaching and organizing. She's been involved with a remarkable group of activists and organizers in Philadelphia, Asian Americans United. And with them, Gim has fought to defend public education, empower workers, and prevent the displacement of working class families by developers. Her candidacy four years ago for an at-large city council seat extended from that activism, and she has been so effective that this spring, she was the top vote-getter among more than two dozen candidates in the citywide Democratic primaries. Gim, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Delighted to be here. It's a great pleasure to have you. I'm interested always in people's stories of how they come to politics. And one of the things that strikes me is that you are one of a, a number of Korean Americans who have become important leaders in cities around the country. And it's something we've seen emerge, especially in the last few years. Your parents, if I'm right, came to the U.S. in the 1950s. How did they, how did they end up coming to the U.S.? I think they both came in the early 60s, actually. So I think my dad was here around 1961, 1960-61, and my mom came maybe a year later. They were students. They came here on student visas. My dad was a refugee of sorts from the Korean War. He was in the North Korean army and then came south, lived on his own for almost a decade and then taught himself English, worked for the U.S. Army, did a bunch of odd jobs, was frequently homeless and then took a national exam, a national scholarship exam, and won a scholarship, was sponsored by the Quakers. So he went to George Fox College in Oregon. And my mom came here on a student visa to pursue nutrition at the University of Washington. Were either of them political? My father was... You know, so our, our family legend goes that, uh, you know, before he came to the United States, he was desperately afraid that because he had been homeless and often struggled to find food and appropriate food, he was worried that he had parasites and wouldn't pass a medical exam that was required for him to come to the U.S. So he allegedly stole some gasoline, drank a quarter cup of it, and then crawled into like a warehouse, um, spent the weekend barely alive there, got up on Monday morning, took his exam, passed it, then got on the plane and never looked back. <laughs> wow. And then he renamed himself Juan Golden Gim when he came to the U.S. in honor of a new country and a new life. My father really threw himself into 
just being incredibly grateful for everything that uh, American politics meant to him. He, you know, loved John F. Kennedy when he first came, grateful to Lyndon Johnson for ending racist immigration laws, grateful to Carter because I think that was the year that he became a U.S. citizen and has always been really wedded to a Democratic Party that he felt opened the country up to immigrants' opportunities and was always invested in an expansive view of the nation. And my mom was a little less political. She would always say, don't disturb the waters or don't ruffle feathers. And so I clearly did not learn that lesson very well, but was much more like my father. My dad was more than just political in terms of following politics Nationally, he was just a really political person in life. So he was very active in the Korean church and mostly about denouncing bad Korean politics or people who like to use their church donations to rename church annexes after themselves and frequently upended and left churches in sometimes quite dramatic fashions. So my mom was always really upset whenever those things would happen. And I think, you know, early on, we got a sense, my sister and I got a sense that my dad was really the one who was just going to lay it out on the line and definitely call out BS. And especially he was upset when, when money was used as a form of power to wield against others. Boy, did you get that lesson. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely absorbed that. Yeah. So that that gives us a real sense of of sort of some of the beginnings. But is there a point, is there a a time where you really sensed yourself being politicized and becoming more engaged? I mean, I think that I came into politics a little bit later for me. You know, I went to a, a suburban Columbus, Ohio school, went to college and wasn't particularly political there, though I was really, really into journalism and newspapers and loved uh, the idea that journalism and stories could change the world and really wanted to do that work. But I think that my politics were really shaped when I came back to Philadelphia and got involved with some community work and happened upon a small organization called Asian Americans United, uh, which was a small little Chinatown organization founded by incredibly charismatic and dynamic individuals. And I remember I was working with youth and doing an after school program. And this woman that I worked with asked if I knew this woman named Debbie Way. And I said, no. And she said, well, you need to go to the organization she founded because they're going to change the world. So I walked in and, in fact, found that that was exactly true, that this tiny group of radical Asian-American activists, uh, absolute matriarchy from all the way through in their leadership structure and thinking, did go out and try to change the world. And about what year was that? Um, I came to them probably around 1994. So by the time you met up with them, you had already done a little stint in journalism. You'd you'd worked for a newspaper and done some teaching? 
Yep, I was I I was a teacher in the school district. I had just actually they were the ones that really convinced me to go into teaching as a profession because so many of them were teachers and educators in the Philadelphia public schools. They were artists and historians and I found that teaching was an extraordinary way of doing profoundly like deep pedagogical thinking and writing. And it was just like the most intellectually creative and dynamic group of people that I was around. We were writing curriculum and books and study guides and talking to each other about the impact of history and colonialism and imperialism, and then translating that and then going into classrooms and working with young people and making them excited about art and math and history and science and the possibility of poetry and writing. And so for me, that time period that I was in between 90, 1993 and 1997, 98 was, you know, I, I felt just like an extraordinary time of expansive intellectual thinking and creativity with brilliant people who not only were able to think about big ideas and knew a lot about history, but then were able to translate it and make it exciting for 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds and then go out and start doing rallies and organizing folks. And so it was, it was, you know, really amazing. It was like a burst of creativity and it felt personal and expansive all at the same time. It sounds vibrant. It sounds, it does, it does sound very <laughs> it inspiring. Was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we took on, I think during that time, I was just starting to get into some community organizing work and I wasn't really very political, didn't know a lot of people, but I met Yuri Koshiyama, for example, who came and spoke to us at our, um, you know, at, at one of our 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 fundraising events, Grace Lee Boggs came to my house and I hosted her for two nights and then had <laughs> from Detroit and um, had her in my living room and had groups of people and it felt very natural and it felt very personal because there's this, you know, small group of people dreaming and thinking big about land usage, about young people, about our schools and neighborhoods, the role of Asian Americans. And then, of course, when you step back for a moment and you start reading the biographies of Yuri and Grace, uh, you're thinking to yourself, like, this is this is amazing. You know, it's incredible to be in these rooms with them. I am intersecting with history. Intersecting yeah. with history and being in a moment where their wisdom is meeting with your 20-year-old self and just dreaming as, as big as you can. What a, what a great way of describing it. And you were obviously a part of this community in Philadelphia, but hooking into people from around the country who were thinking big and, and at a time when cities were, in many cases, suffering a lot of deindustrialization mm-hmm. and then also an awful lot of development pressures in the core cities. Exactly. And so it, here you have all these this dreaming, but you're also confronting, you're confronting threats in, in many cases. Coming out of an Asian American community, certainly growing up as an Asian American, I didn't feel like politics and the world was, I didn't feel like very much a part of it. And so, you know, of course, like with 
I think a lot of Asian Americans are one of the more defining characteristics is just the invisibility of your stories and your history and about especially a movement history or an activist history that you don't really learn about your sort of victims of internment or individuals, you know, who stand up in a particular moment and become cabinet secretary of this or that, you know, but it wasn't telling a bigger story. And what I felt so fortunate at being a part of through Asian Americans United was here we were this like small, scrappy little nonprofit in the middle of Philadelphia Chinatown in the early to mid 90s. And we did have a constellation of people come through and talk to us about movements and big moments in history. But then as soon as they left, we were out there fighting to save Chinatown from being bulldozed for, you know, stadiums and other types of development. We were talking about the resettlement of Southeast Asian refugees post-Vietnam in cities and the the impact that they had on schools, the intersection with policing and the desperate need for housing. So it, it did feel like these people who came through were not just coming through to impart lessons, but also to get back what is happening on the ground in places big and small around the country. Certainly to me, it felt like what was happening in Chinatown, in Philadelphia, and the movement that people were building to define an Asian American left, but also to merge it with other communities of color, to talk about uh, this small uh, immigrant neighborhood of Chinatown as being part of a bigger narrative and story of an evolving city trying to fight off, quote unquote, urban revitalization um, or urban renewal ideas built largely around big box projects for corporate entities. You know, for our stadium, we often talked about it as a stadium for boys and men open 80 days a year serving people who largely lived outside of our city. And recognizing that all of it was starting to flow together. And, you know, for me, my politics really just generated because I felt so alienated from political structures and entities. But my politics were revitalized and restored by doing hyper localized work that then brought me into bigger and bigger spaces. It, it still defines a lot of my work today about why I think part of the healing of this country starts with doing really local work and work that is very close to people like their children's education, like the transit systems, like public safety and policing and by the environment in which people live in. We'll be back after these messages. The biggest problems facing the world don't respect political boundaries, but are our politicians and other leaders up to the task of solving them? Join host Louisa Savage and Politico journalists from across the world as they unpack the answer to that question on Politico's Global Transitions podcast. The first season examines who will write global rules for trade, for new technologies like 5G and AI, and for fighting climate change. Search for Politico's Global Transitions wherever you're listening to this show. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called... 
the Mother Jones podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter, told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Philadelphia City Council member Helen Gim. And so you got this deep view of a city, the city of Philadelphia where you were, and kind of how the structures were working, where the threats were coming. You took on corporate power and political power in the stadium fights in your neighborhood, a, a casino fight, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you looked at the folks you were battling with, the city councils and, and other folks, and you thought, I could do this? <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. I, I don't okay. think it became like that. I mean, you know, to this day, I still believe that power is outside of politics and political structures. I think power resides in communities and the possibility of communities to build out big movements and broad based coalitions for change. Um, I think the deciding factor for me was to, to go into office was really when I felt like our political movement had grown big enough that we could not say, hey, I could do that, but we had to take over City Hall. I mean, I really did feel like a lot of my work is predictable. I mean, it should be no surprise that someone who's a mom of three kids, a former public school teacher, whose profession, professional life and personal life is tied up in education and schooling would make public education and the vitality and vibrancy and health of our public schools my number one issue. I think what ended up happening was that our public schools became really a testing ground for the worst of corporatized and in particular democratic political abdication. So Philadelphia basically, you know, we went through a state takeover in 2001. Um, I was part of a broad based movement that fought the state takeover of the public schools. At no point during that time did I think, hey, I want to be a city council member so I too can fight it. I wanted to be part of the movement that was defining what it meant to fight for public education and schools. And that I knew that that work had a long way to go because we 
were being taken over by political entities who no longer believed in public education, saw it as a point of profit, or were abdicating and shedding their responsibilities for it. And over the next 20 years, what I, you know, I, I never during the time really thought like, I really want to be in politics in this moment. I really only wanted to keep building out the power of organizing groups and communities to come together in a broad-based defense of and support for quality public schools and young people in our city. I think that was just, that was my passion. It's like me coming out as a teacher, as a mom, as, you know, a citizen in this, in this city, that was the kind of city that I wanted to build and be part of. And I did not feel that politics was the vehicle for that because it was a place where we were seeing short-sighted ideas where if you're defined by money, there is a shortage around resources, but mostly there was a shortage of vision before any amount of money. There was a shortage of vision around schools and the expansive vision, everything possible. What we dreamed of was coming out of neighborhoods and parent groups and backyard barbecues and schoolyards and recess. Like those are the places where we talked about what was wrong, but also what we needed to do to build out and build bigger. I think the point when I decided that we were going to take on City Hall was shortly after the city and the state decided to close down 24 public schools in one two-hour board meeting. In that year, we had lost just shortly before almost a billion dollars was cut out of the state education budget by a governor who promised that that's what he was going to do. We closed down 24 public schools in a single school board meeting, 30 public schools total within less than two years. Just a few months later, we expanded charters by the same amount of money that we had allegedly saved by closing public schools. And then schools opened the following September with 4,000 less staff members. And that fall, a young girl named LaPortia Massey, 12 years old, died after having an asthma attack in a school without a school nurse that no one could identify. Mm. Those factors, all those things came together to say... We knew now what we wanted. So our community over the, the years that we had built out a community of organizers and activists, we knew now what we wanted. And we had the organizing chops to put a thousand people in the streets to shut down meetings. And we were looking at unelected, unaccountable people in charge of our school district um, that were allowing crimes to happen against our children, we thought never again. It took us a while for us to grieve through a process to pick ourselves back up. And then I think we approached school organizing and politics with a fury and a fervor that I'm still driven by. That's such a distinctive way to go at politics, right? It isn't It isn't looking at it as, oh, here's an opportunity. It, it really is looking at it as a movement activity, as a movement drive, and in a sense, as an extension of organizing. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was. It was a movement of people who were and had been working together for so long to build something out. And and that 
we had grown stronger than a political moment. You know, we threw out that governor who had done those budget cuts. And the following year were the municipal elections. And there were dozens of people, you know, running for office. And I know that I kept waiting for somebody who was going to pick up the mantle. We had laid the table, you know, everything was there and went back and you know, talked to a lot of the different groups and organizers and decided that it would be me that would run and to really take something on and try to drive this vision. You know, the the election in my election in 2015 was obviously amazing, extraordinary, hopeful. But I think the last three and a half years of trying to show what a difference in governance looks like has been a lot of rigor and discipline and holding true to our organizing principles and continuing like a really dynamic interplay between organizing groups and City Hall that has opened up so many opportunities for us to not only dream big, but make big things happen in our city. What you're talking about is intersectional governance in a sense, where you, you know, you don't just look at one thing and, oh, we've got a problem here, we've got a problem there. You're recognizing that housing relates to schools and that wages and union protections relate to whether you can afford a house and whether, again, and, and coming back into the school. So I've noticed that in so many of the things that you work on, you don't just talk about one thing. You ask people to, to think about the whole. I think that fluidity is so important because you're exactly right that the you know, the impact of a felony conviction, for example, or a juvenile adjudication on somebody's record can have profound impact on their ability to access schooling, housing, jobs. And, you know, we were getting too isolated in passing individual pieces of legislation rather than packages that really change Systems, And I think because I come in from that organizing background, we do think long term. I mean, in organizing, I think one of the most powerful things is that you're not looking at cycle to cycle or a policy or piece of legislation in isolation. You're looking at things over transformative period of time and what needs to change both from a government perspective, but mostly from community perspectives, resources, support networks, advocacy groups. What are all these groups all doing to work together to transform the ways that we're changing a particular issue? You've also done very well at getting national attention to struggles on the ground in Philadelphia. And I think of the hospital fight that you've been involved in recently. Yep. It's, it's really re quite remarkable because there's people all over the United States who know about a struggle to keep a hospital up and running. I see community organizing as very much of a folk art and a folk tradition. It goes back to our ability to tell stories that resonate with people. It's hard for people to understand this economy and this world that we're living in with so much inequality if we only define it through numbers. But I think when we define it, not only through the stories of people who are living it, but in particular through the stories of people who are standing up in a moment of injustice and saying, absolutely not, not on my watch will I be silent about this issue. That's the moment, I think, when people wake up, when people stop thinking about statistics as being just the natural order of things, but that a group of people 
in a city or a locality, standing up in a moment and speaking their truths, denying a corporate profiteer um, like Joel Friedman, who came in as a Los Angeles investment hedge funder through private equity, bought up a hospital that serves some of our poorest residents in Philadelphia and is trying to flip it in less than 18 months for a real estate deal. That speaks to something in this country that I also think is is really powerful, which is a sense of justice and all of us, you know, there there is an America out there that also taps in to a defiance about what's wrong in this world, as much as there is an America that is being reflected by the current waves of white supremacy and corporate power. There is also groups of people all around the country who are defiant, rebellious, resisting a moment and then leading a more powerful vision for how we move forward. And, you know, I'm glad that Philadelphia is able to snap people out of their complacency and our sense that we can't overcome, because I think that's the thing that is our biggest fight more than anything that could come out of 1600 Pennsylvania Ave is the danger that we've got that we can't really change things, that this is the world as it's going to be. And I think my biggest fight has always been against complacency and the overwhelming feeling that things will never change. And, you know, people standing up Young people, especially seniors and immigrants and folks who reflect the wide variety of, of life here in Philadelphia, who are black, brown, immigrant, who are wealthy and who are struggling at the margins, us coming together to defend a hospital or to stand up for our public schools or to not have a refinery blow up in the middle of one of the biggest cities in the country. Like the, these have unified our city and they have sparked in us an ability to stand up in this moment. Is there a song people should be listening to as they march and rally? And Yeah, well, we have a theme song through my organization at Asian Americans United, and it's always been, you know, very inspirational. We, like, sing it with young people, but it's a South African artist named Lobby Seafree who sings a song called Something Inside So Strong. You know, it's like it's it's a harking back that, in fact, this idea that we're assailed at all times by all these forces, but that our power is not defined in relationship to those external powers, but unlocking power within ourselves and within our own communities and that those things are unstoppable. Well, you sound pretty unstoppable. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. You bring so much to to this, and I especially appreciate your vision of things starting in one community and going nationwide. Uh, we're going to keep a, a close eye on Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you. Next week, we'll be working on interviews and show prep for future episodes of Next Left. So we're inviting you to check out some of the interviews we've already done. Consider Congresswoman Ilhan Omar or Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib or Judge Frank Bynum, the criminal justice reform activist who's on the bench in Houston, Texas. We'll be back on August 27th with a new episode of Next Left. This episode of Next Left 
was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week by Shani Avaram. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Join me on the Nation Cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th. Sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board.